Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapters 14 and 15. Uh, Genesis chapters 14 and 15. And while you turn there, um, I don't know if you have heard this question from an unbelieving uh, friend or coworker or someone you were trying to share the gospel with, you know, as, as Reformed folk. Um, we, we love the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, there is this reaction in the world to a God that desires to be glorified by man as how selfish, how self-centered. Um, and, and I want us this morning to think about how God answers that question. I want you to think about how, how would you respond to someone who makes that accusation of God? They are in that accusing God of sin for seeking his own glory. How would you walk a, non, a non-believer through showing from God's word the greatest thing God can give us? is glorifying himself. This is good for us. Let's attend to the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 14. Let's pray before we jump in. Father God, I pray that your word would fall on us like rain. The dry grasses that need rain to grow in the arid world of Judea God, you bringing rain, that meant life for the people of the Bible. And so, God, I pray that we would be able to fight sin like Jesus said, saying that we don't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the very mouth of God. Our Savior, God, called your, your word the very mouthpiece of God. So God, help us to listen to your word. Help us to submit to it, be built up by it, be encouraged by it, for our sin to be exposed, for us to be driven to the cross, for us to be assured of its truthfulness. God, this is an impossibly high order in our own power, certainly in my own power, but not by the power of your Spirit. The Holy Spirit, come. Help us now. With the foolishness of preaching, I pray that your church would be built up. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, (coughs) starting early today, in the days of Amraphel, (coughs) king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, and Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, <coughs> Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and <coughs> the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they'd served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephaim and Asher Karname and Zuzim and Ham. 
and Emim and Sheva Kirathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamor. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elassar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pit. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their possessions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite. Brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After this, he returned from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, the king the kings who were with him, <clears throat> the kings of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies, <coughs> delivered your enemies <coughs> into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing. But what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, let Anor, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. After these things, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your reward. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. 
But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came out on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to him, to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Afterward, they shall come out with their great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, but they shall come back here in the fourth generation. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Beloved, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Beloved, again, we have two chapters this morning. It seems like a lot, and as I was, I began the week thinking that we would just do 14, but in 14, there's there's these kings, and we saw this last week. We talked about kind of the the kings at that time were kind of local warlords. It's, it's a king of a city, and, and a number of cities and their kings gang up against a number of other cities and gang up. And, 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 and we'll see how the defeat of those kings radically helps us understand this covenant that God is going to make with Abraham. So let's, um, I'm not going to read again all of 14, but just to summarize, you know, if, if you read this, if, if you've ever watched a Star Wars movie, you know, it begins, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then they give you like this 10 paragraphs of context so that you understand what's going on. But, but once you get through the context, then the actual fight is the whole movie. Well, in this, it's just context. You have, you have how many, ver- you have 16 verses just describing the context of this battle and then a, you know, a verse or two describing the battle, and then they win and go on. And I am convinced that I don't think that the sermon to preach here, I don't think the message here is, look at Abram being a king, Christ is a better king. That is true. That has been preached, that is true. I don't think that's the point here. It, doesn't, it just focuses on all this context, all of these kings being defeated. And then it it kind of zooms in to what happens in the celebration after that battle. And so in in, in the previous chapter, uh, Abraham and Lot have have gone, Abram and Lot have gone their separate ways. 
Abram is now in the arid, mountainous Negev. It's, it's very arid. Um, it, you know, favors sheep herding. It's hard to plow and, and plant and grow wheat. But uh, Lot has gone down into the, the Salt Sea Valley, which at that time is described as well-watered like the Garden of Eden. It's like Egypt. It's this beautiful valley. And it's, it's interesting that Lot gets caught up in the conflict because he has lived in the really lavish and lush place, you know. Um, I've never had, you know, my car stolen because I, I've driven beaters my whole life, you know. I, Lot's in the lush place, and he gets caught up in the conflict over the, the wealthy land. And Abraham goes and he rescues, rec- rescues him. He is a man uh, who can pick up the sword and lead men. He has allies that he leads with him to rescue Lot. And they win. And then uh, let's jump in at verse 17 and, and see what happened. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, he was priest of God Most High. Now, th- this should kind of jump off the page at you. We need to remember that we're only actually a few hundred years from the death of Noah. Um, there are still certainly a remnant of people that remember what God has done and are worshiping him. Interestingly enough, Moses, when he runs into the Midianites, finds another priest of God Most High, Jethro. And so there is still a remnant of Yahweh worshipers at this time. God didn't let you, it wasn't that faith had died out and he raised up Abram. It's as that faith is dying out, God is providing another way. And so here is this Melchizedek guy who, we could do a whole Sunday school class just going, who on earth is Melchizedek? Melchizedek means king of righteousness. MLK in Hebrew, if you will, milk is king, Tzadeh, is righteousness. Milkit Tzadek is the king of righteousness. And he is, he is the king over the city, which is called Salem. He's the king of peace. And he brings, he's a priest of God most high, and he comes and he, he blesses Abraham. And I want to be careful, this isn't, we shouldn't, you know, we hear bread and wine and we immediately think, oh, communion. Um, Maybe it's a shadow of that. As I look at it, I can't tell. But it's, it's a blessing. The, a priest of God Most High is blessing Abram in his work. But then here is the blessing that he pronounces. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. He sees Abram's victory is a fulfillment of God's promises. Abraham is victorious because of his faith in Yahweh. And Abraham honors Melchizedek. He gives a tent. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, he's, and so, so Sodom, the, the other kings are around this. They see a priest of God most high honoring Abram after his military victory. And the king of Sodom, remember Sodom was taken captive. This is one of the defeated kings. You see, that what it meant for them to serve Chedorlaomer for 12 years was they were probably paying tribute. They had probably been bested a few years previous. And he goes, hey, send me tribute, and then when a, when a big fight needs to happen, we'll, you know, we're, we have an alliance. But people get tired of paying their taxes. They get po- tired of paying this tribute, and so they rebel. 
And so this conquered king who had rebelled against Chedorlaomer is now looking at Abram, sees that he is honored by God most high, and it's, a, and it's the king of Sodom that says to Abram, give me the persons, the people, take the goods for yourself. What's going on here? Why is he paying Abram? What, what's he, is, is this a, is he looking for fealty? Is he going, this is the guy. You know, maybe we could form a kingdom around Abram. That's, that's what it looks like. He's, he, when you are giving someone all the goods of battle, that is the beginning of tribute. But Abram doesn't get into it. Abram says to the king of Sodom, he says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I wouldn't take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram is very concerned. God has made these promises to lift up and bless Abraham, and he wants no one else to be glorified but God alone in them. And he is carefully not getting himself attached in them. He says, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, which is actually, this idea is actually in the law. It's a very, um, when you walk through someone's field um, as a foreigner, you can fill your belly, but you're not allowed to fill your pockets. Um, if you walk through someone's orchard, you know, the straightest distance between two points is a straight line. They don't have trespassing laws. If you're traveling and you pass through an orchard, you can, you can take an apple and eat it. You just can't fill your pockets and go sell it later. You can fill your, this is just a care for the foreigner. A, fair, uh, a, a care for the sojourner. And, and you see, Abram is saying, I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. He lets Anor and Eshkel and Mamre, he, he rallied three other cities to go with him in this fight. And he says, let them, you know, you, you want to give them some tribute, you want to give them some spoils of war, take it. You know, it's a very different Abram than we saw who is giving up his wife because he is afraid. He is afraid. And now Abram has has grown in his faith. He has been radically successful on the field of battle. He has conducted himself as a general in a time of war, been successful, been pronounced blessed by God Most High, by the the King of Righteousness. He is doing well. He is seeking God's glory. And and an important thing, an, an ancient person in the ancient Near East reading this, what would they expect What would the agreement between Abram and these kings look like? If Abram and Sodom got into an agreement uh, with paying tribute, what would it look like? It would look like a covenant. This is how, we have lots of documents of the Hittites at this time. In this region, the way they enter into covenants, and it's critically important that you understand this. There is this king-servant or suzerain-vassal thing called a covenant. And when one king conquers another and he calls the other to give him tribute, what they did, the the Hittites all did this. We have many, many copies of them. They rip animals in half. And the conquered party then walks between the animals torn in two and is saying, in effect, let this be done to me if I don't hold up my end of the bargain. That after a warfare sequence, this is what you expect if you're an ancient person. You read the conquest of these kings and you expect this is how Abraham you know, gets the land. This is how he becomes the king. He, he forces all his conquered people to enter into a covenant with him and it looks like Sodom is very ready and willing to do that. 
That would have been very, that, that would have been the norm, the expected thing. Abram has been a conqueror. He is doing well. God is blessing him. Have you ever kind of done well for a while? But you know in, in your heart you still have some doubts. Have you ever kind of found success for brief periods in your life? You're doing well and yet still you have a few doubts. You know, chapter 14 shows us Abraham doing well, being successful. He is conquering. He is seeking God's glory. He is being blessed by the, the king of righteousness. And it's, it's after these things, chapter 15 starts. That's the context for the, for the covenant that we see established in chapter 15. If we just learn about chapter 14 and, and tear it apart from chapter 15, we miss the setting. Abraham is not coming to 15 as a man who has just failed a whole bunch. He is actually coming to 15 as a, as a man who has been successful. He is doing well. He has conquered. And it's after these things the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, the battles that just happened. Your reward shall be very great. The reward that he didn't get from Sodom. God is saying, what you just kind of gave up, I will be that for you. But Abram said, sometimes faith is hardest when we are doing well. But Abram says, oh Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Not even his own son. <coughs> Here I think it's a critical distinction for us to make. Abraham, in his doubts, is not complaining about God. He is bringing his honest complaints to God. The Psalms teach us that. <clears throat> when the psalmist cries out, hurry, Lord, it feels like you're far away. When the psalmist says, God, it feels like your hands are in your pockets. We're not saying that God stands around with his hands in his pockets or that God is ever far away but we're going to feel that way. And it is by faith Abraham brings his complaints, his worries, his fears, and his doubts to God. <clears throat> Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look at the stars, look at the heavens. Number them if you're able to number them. He said to him, so shall your offspring be. I wonder how, you know, if God can speak the cosmos and the heavens into being, maybe, just maybe, he can solve this childlessness problem. It, it's easy for us to laugh at you know, Abraham. You know. Where are your doubts right now? Where are your worries right now? 
Is there a relationship in your life that is hurting and you've just kind of given up on working to repair it because there's no hope The God that created the cosmos, maybe he can overcome our problems as well. And in staring at the stars, Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. We see salvation, justification by faith right here. Before the covenant of circumcision, before the law, before the covenant, God credits to Abraham righteousness. The New Testament makes a big deal of this, beloved. We don't believe that, you know, people in the Old Testament, they were saved by, you know, grit and obedience, and it's like, oh, in the New Testament, we're saved by grace through faith. No, beloved. If you are a child of faith, you're a child of Abraham, And we, like he, come to God. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to thy cross thy claim. Abraham didn't have the cross, but he had God's promises. And he clung to them. And he looks at the stars, and he believes. Beloved, some of us, we've kind of given up on some things in our life, and we need to, to look at the heavens, we need to look at the earth, remind ourselves that the God who made them, the God of Genesis 1, is the God that leads you. This is one night. So it's at night, he goes out and he sees the stars and he gives a promise. Promise one is one through six. But then he gives another promise. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. This is the beginning of a covenant formula. The way covenants work is you, you begin by saying what has already been done. God is saying, I have already been blessing you and leading you and guiding you for a long time. You are where you are because God has taken you by the hand and brought you there. And it may have been a bumpy ride. You may have failed. You may have given away your wife to Pharaoh. Well, You probably didn't struggle with that. But in other ways, we, like Abram, have failed. But he has brought us here thus far. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you, it's the same God. The, the God of Philippians 1.6 is the same God here. When, when Paul reminds the Philippians, he who began a good work in you is carrying it to completion. But he said, Abram says, verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I will possess it? How am I to know he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old. Here the, the covenant begins. And so it's, there was a night in verses one through six. Now during the day, this is a long conversation. This isn't just a real short conversation. You can read it in two minutes. But this is taking place over at least two nights and a day. And he brings these animals, the heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half laid each half over against the other, but didn't cut the birds in half. The idea is like book-matching wood. They get cut in half, and then they get splayed open, so they're mirror images, kind of the the legs facing inward. And so there's this bloody corridor to walk down. What do you think Abraham is thinking? 
This is, this is a covenant formula. This is a norm in this culture. Abram's setting it up, and he goes, I'm going to enter into a covenant with God. I'm going to walk through. Good, you know, finally, something to do. May, I don't know what he's thinking. I know what I might have been thinking. So he sets up this covenant ritual. It's during the day. And the sun goes down, and apparently the animals had laid out and baked in the sun so long that the, the carrion birds begin to show up. The sun, well, so the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. He has a restless and troubled sleep. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain. Where does your certainty come from? Where does your assurance in your salvation come from? Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. They will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. Can you imagine the the Israelites coming up out of Egypt first hearing this story? Oh, wait, so this oppression by the Egyptians wasn't like a mistake that's being corrected. This was the plan. Wilderness wandering, times of the church in bondage and trial is part of the plan. God is going, we're we're not going to get to the fulfillment of these things quickly, but we will get there. Know for certain. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions, the same way Abram did. Abraham went down, comes up with great possessions. The Israelites go down, come up with great possessions. He says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll die in peace. You will be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Generation is a really fluid term. Sometimes it's 20 years. Sometimes it's 40 years. Sometimes it's it's, uh, it's 100 years, and you have four of them. It's just a nebulous period of time, 400 years. They'll come back in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See, God can't give them the land. It would be an injustice for God to give them the land because it hasn't, they haven't deserved getting it ripped out from under them yet. There is still men like Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, amongst the Amorites. Very likely one of those people groups that's been listed himself. There is still at least some faith there. And he goes, it's not time yet. There is a justice at when, when the Israelites come in and conquer the promised land. There is a justice aspect that we need to answer for the world today. It's not just a genocide. It's God's righteous judgment that he was very patient in bringing. But beloved, all, all of this context gets us to the gospel. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot. The flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant. The Lord cut a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmites, the Hittites, Perizzites, and Rephaim, the Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. God cuts a covenant. 
We see Abraham conquering in 14 as people are breaking covenants. We see him being blessed and successful and we see people probably desiring to enter into a covenant with him. If this was like an ancient novel, you know, people would be expecting a covenant, Abraham to strike a covenant. That's how he finds the success. Subjecting people and, and bringing other people to, to walk through the animals to enter into covenant with him. But in all of his success, he wants God to be glorified in his, success, in, in, in his being blessed in this promised land. But he still has his doubts. He still has his worries. He still has his fears. He voices those to God. God sets up this covenant ritual. I am sure Abraham is thinking maybe I'm going to pass through and God's going to give me a promise because the vassal still has promises from the great king. Chedorlaomer had obligations to Sodom and Gomorrah. If they get attacked, the king that all your tribute is going to is supposed to protect you. It is still a blessing to be subject to a king in this situation. And Abraham has passed out having his vision and God passes between the animals. In no small way proclaiming to every ancient man God is saying to Abram, if I don't fulfill my word, let this be done to me. Let this be done to me. And so I, I ask the question, is it selfish for God to seek his own glory? Abraham's success, Abraham's bringing of the covenant people, and particularly bringing the Christ, his being a blessing to the nation, all these promises, it's about God's glory. And so, by, by God saving his people in this way, God is going, it's all going to be me. Let it be done to me. And beloved, that's what happened. That the reason we are able to ex experience the blessing of relationship with God is not because we pass through and make a covenant with God, but because God makes a covenant with us and says, let this be done to me. Let this be done to me. And that was the cost that Jesus paid. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Cursed is every man that is hung upon a tree, and God himself, come in the flesh, hangs on the tree in order to make these covenant promises possible. Beloved, if, if, if God had Abraham pass through, and Abraham is going, let this be done to me if I don't uphold this. If he thought maybe he could claw his way into the graces of God, would that be good for Abram? John MacArthur says it this way, if you could muck up your salvation, you would. Abraham believes God and it is counted to him as righteousness. Salvation from the beginning of the Bible to the end is all of grace, all by the means of faith. And what does this effectively do? 
One, it frees us from the burden of thinking that we need to earn our way to God. It frees us from that. Some of us have been crushed by that in church. Some of us have been crushed by that in our own devotional life, thinking that, you know, if I'm, if I'm good enough, maybe God will bless me. Maybe if I'm good enough, this, rela- this problem will be solved. We, in our own ways, are saying to God, I want to pass through, and I want to, you know, but actually by making salvation something that we earn, we are stealing from God's glory. This is what, how it, Paul says it in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no man may boast. Beloved, we're going to sing a new song this morning called All Glory Be to Christ. From beginning to end, God's word is about his glory. And beloved, that is very good news. Because you are set free. From, from any need to pass through the animals, which is absolutely what we deserve. But by being freed of having to earn our salvation through works, how could God have honored Abram in any a greater way? This is the greatest blessing that God could possibly give Abram beyond anything Abram could have Asked or imagine, God goes, it'll hang on me. It will depend on me and I will accomplish. That God seeking his own glory in salvation, it frees us from the tyranny of sin and death. And can you imagine being honored and, and given a greater hope? It is not selfish for God to seek his own glory. God seeking his own glory and salvation is the gospel. If you're dealing with a non-believer, I'd encourage you to take him to Genesis 15, maybe. That in this salvation, God is most glorified. But oh, the joy that it brings us to. Our relationship with God is not, you know, like a worker and the boss where we earn our wage. It is all of great. God seeking his own glory is the greatest gift he could have possibly given to man. And the way that he does that is Jesus Christ, which is why we sing all glory be Christ. Let's pray as the worship team. Father God, you have chosen to use the foolishness of preaching proclamation of your word by the Spirit convince and convert sinners to encourage the downtrodden to open blind eyes to unstop ears, locked up ears God, I pray that your word that in your word that we would see you and all of your grace and all of your goodness and all of your love god help us to know in our bone as a congregation that you seeking your own greatest glory is the greatest gift you could have given to us 
and that we would see that and as opposed to seeing a selfish God, that we would see a loving Father. Help us to this end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.